You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power that had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was the day I started uh, thinking through this passage and really praying through this passage in preparation to preach, and it was a pretty typical Tuesday morning for me, my typical Tuesday morning routine is to go drive to the coffee shop, get a cup of coffee, sit down, just begin to read through the passage. Before I'm reading any kind of commentary or thinking through it, really, I'm just giving, allowing space for the Word of God to speak. So I'm leaving the coffee shop, I get in my uh, vehicle to come over here to the church, and as I uh, turn the corner, I'm stopped at a stoplight, and I look over to my left, and I see a woman in her car just in time as she does this. Now, this is a sight we've probably all seen a million times. But it struck me, just the the, the combination of just having read this passage and then seeing this woman 
as she placed her hands over her face. And it struck me that although there is 2,000 years between us and the, and the man and woman that we, we read about today here in Mark 5, and despite the geographical distance between here and first century Palestine, the world that Mark describes here is, in fact, the world that we are living in. Let's not allow this to be separated from our lives. We are living in this sort of world, a world where despite the fact that kids should outlive their parents, life is fickle, kids get sick, and they even die. In a world where there are countless men and women that are spending their entire lives and spending their entire fortunes trying to fix themselves, but like this woman, are no better off. Where there are things that are just broken beyond repair. We, too, live in a world where we put our hands over our face in despair. But it doesn't just put, Mark doesn't just put the the finger on the pulse here, confirming that we do live in a world where things are dying. But this this passage highlights the hope of Jesus Christ and really what his healing touch means for our humanity. In a world where things are as good as dead, in a world where you know, the, the, the sentiment is, why bother anymore? Why keep trying? What does it matter? Things are gone. Things are too far gone. In the world where even the thought of Jesus bringing change is laughable. Into that world, Jesus speaks with resurrection power and with just as much power and just as much force and just as much grace and says, Arise. Mark tells us that following an interaction with the demon-possessed man, Jesus crossed back over the sea once again. And there he's meted, he's meted, he's met. He's met by a crowd. It's interesting, in the midst of the crowd, there are two individuals that give Jesus' attention. Now we we can imagine as this scene is unfolding, there are a lot of people there, but two people specifically get Jesus' attention. The first is Jairus, who is the father of a girl who is right on the brink of death. And then there is this woman who has this issue of blood. Now, in both situations, in Jewish terms, the life is escaping them. And in Jewish terms, they are facing situations of uncleanness. Both are dire situations that require the grace and intervention of Jesus Christ. So look with me in verse 22 through 20. Three. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He went with them. Now what's remarkable about this scene is that Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. He is probably the least likely person to be falling at anyone's feet. If there's anyone that has everything to lose by being caught groveling and at Jesus' feet, nonetheless, it's this man. This would have stirred uh, controversy, religious controversy. This could have lost him his position. This could have cost him his reputation in the community. And yet, he is willing to put it all on the line to come to Jesus. I'm reminded of the words of Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's laying it all down. And what we see in this passage is that you can cling to your present life or you can cling to Jesus Christ. You just can't cling to both. 
To receive the abundance of Jesus Christ means to empty the contents of our hands. Some of us will fail to receive Christ, and some of us will fail to receive the abundance of Jesus Christ because we are unwilling to part with all the things that we think make us us. All of the things that we have formed our identity around, all the things that we are clinging to in order to get a sense of security and purpose and worth and meaning. My friend, you are not in danger of being too broken to come to Jesus today. But you are, however, in danger of being too put together. What I find interesting in this account here in Mark, these stories sort of sandwiched together, is that socially, religiously, economically, these two individuals couldn't be any more different. Jairus is a first century man, which already gives him an advantage. It says in the scriptures that he's a synagogue leader. He has a large household with servants. He's married. He has at least a child. He's a distinguished figure. Mark gives him a name. Mark doesn't give everyone a name. And then there's this woman, a nameless, moneyless, probably familyless woman. Because of her issue of blood, this would have made her ceremonially unclean, which means that she has been excluded from, for at least the last 12 years, from temple worship. She's disconnected from God's presence and God's, or so she thinks, rather, from God's presence and God's people. Assuming that this blood is coming from her uterus, this means that she cannot have children. And in the first century, because she can't have children, she's not going to have any luck getting married and having a family of her own. One is extremely advantaged. The other is extremely disadvantaged. And yet something very powerful in this scene levels the playing field, binds them together, and causes in this very moment for the cross to pass. And that thing at this moment is mutual need for Jesus. A man from this walk of life and a woman from this walk of life joined together through a mutual need for Jesus. Need. And particularly the need for Jesus has the ability to transcend all of the socioeconomic limits and line, dividing lines. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. When we are confronted with dire need, none of it will save you. Not your name. Not your reputation. Not your net worth. Not your accomplishments. None of it. Nothing that this man has right now puts him at an advantage in receiving from God. And nothing that this woman lacks puts her at a disadvantage. Need has leveled the playing field. And they are both being received and helped by Jesus on the basis, and listen, on the basis of grace at work through faith. I believe the reason that, that Mark is really highlighting these two stories together, these two very different people, is to highlight the mystery of grace, that grace is not merited. It's unmerited, demerited favor from God, despite ourselves. These very different people reach their, their critical height of need, and it leads them to the very same place, to the feet of Jesus. Something profound happens when we kneel at the feet of Jesus Christ, and that's why we have carpets for our second set of worship. Something very profound happens when we, when we kneel in the presence of Jesus. Who we thought we were, based on all of our accomplishments, based on all of our, what we've accumulated, it, it all ceases to matter that much anymore. 
all, all of the stratification, the I'm this and I'm not this and I'm better than this person. And I've done this and I've done more than this person. At least I'm not this person. All of it seems to cease in the presence of Jesus Christ. And here at his feet, what we realize, and it's a humbling moment, what we realize is that we're just another sinner that has come to receive God's abundant grace. Verses 25 through 26. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, this is a very good description of many of our lives. And many of the lives of the people around us, we are desperately trying everything we can do to fix ourselves and to no avail. In fact, if you are like me, what you realize is that the more you try to fix things in your life, the more they fall apart. They're not better. They're worse. See, Mark 5 in its entirety is highlighting a very specific point. If you remember our passage from last week with the demoniac that is delivered. Jesus is able to deliver the demoniac that the people could not control. Jesus is able to heal the woman that the physicians couldn't heal. Jesus is able to raise the girl that the family couldn't keep alive. There's a very specific point being made here, and Mark is making it. And if you're taking notes, it's my first point. When the world's resources break down, Jesus' power breaks in. What cannot be done, God is capable of doing. Jesus is looking in the face of the impossible and bringing about what has been deemed impossible in the life of the demoniac, in the life of the woman, in the life of this young girl. But listen, the way he does this makes things a little bit or maybe a lot of bit uncomfortable. Because notice something here. These are people that have been brought to the very, very end of their rope. They are at the very end of themselves. Both are being brought to the place where now they have nowhere else to run. They've exhausted all of their resources. They are there at the brink of death. But what we see here is a central theme in Mark. What we see here is a central theme in the Gospels and arguably throughout the entire Scriptures. And it's this, that things have to die before they're raised. Which means that our hope in humanity has to die which means our self-confidence has got to die, which means our faith in technology has to die. It's got to die before it's raised. That little plan B, your little ace up your sleeve that you keep around just in case God does not come through, that's got to die too. Listen to the words of Malcolm Muggeridge for it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every resource the world offers, both moral as well as material, has been explored to no effect. And in the gathering darkness, every glimmer of light has finally flickered out. It's then that Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm. Then Christ's words bring inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest, abolishing darkness forever. When the world fails and fails us, and when we fail it, Christ steps in. 
Verse 27, she'd heard the reports about Jesus. Maybe you've heard the reports of him too. Maybe that's why you're here. And so she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. Now, I've got to imagine something as I'm reading this scene, that there's a ton of ailments present this day. In fact, I would go as far as to say that she is probably not the sickest person there. Her situation is probably not worse than the countless people that are around her. Perhaps other people are sick. Perhaps other people are afflicted. Perhaps other people are dying. People are pulling on him and tugging on him and calling him. Jesus, come over here. My son is this. And Come over here. My wife is this. Come over here. My friend is this. Pulling teacher, healer. Jesus, come here. And yet in all the chaos, all of the commotion, I find this very interesting. When she reaches out, he stops everything and he says, wait, 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 wait. who did that? No, I love it. I love how logical the disciples are because as Jesus says, wait, 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 what just happened? The disciples in verse 31 say, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Like you're in the, it's like Jesus is in the middle of a mosh pit and he's like, whoa, 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 someone just brushed me. <laughs> And the disciples like, yeah, you're in a crowd. What do you mean? But there was something different here. Which leads to my second point. There's a world of a difference between being near Jesus and reaching out to Jesus. In other words, of being part of the crowd and laying hold. So what sets this woman apart? What makes her actions noticed? What literally stops the show and causes Jesus to be like, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop everything. According to Jesus, it was faith. It was that cling to Christ. It's faith that opens us up to the healing and saving and transforming work of God through Jesus Christ. It's faith that casts ourselves upon the grace of God. And according to the scriptures, it's faith that is counted to us as righteousness. It's faith. Faith causes Jesus to be like, whoa. But here's the question. Was it perfect faith? No. In fact, it was fearful. It's timid faith. It's a shame-filled faith. It's, it's faith with trepidation. In fact, it's misguided and arguably a little bit suspicious. She thinks that if she goes and she touches the clothing of the healer, that somehow the healing power is in the clothes of the healer. It's suspicious. And yet it's faith nonetheless. The kind that recognizes the need to look outside of ourselves for faith. If you're struggling with faith this morning, this woman needs to be a role model for you because faith at its core, is nothing more than an imperfect reach toward a perfect Savior. That's all we've got. We think that we're going to be judged by the amount of our faith or the quality of our faith. Jesus already told us even a mustard seed can move a mountain. We're not being judged on the amount of our faith or the, the value of our faith. It is the object of our faith. It's not how well are you clinging, how much faith do you have. It is where are you, what are you holding on to? Where have you placed all of your chips? As broken as that faith may be. One author put it this way, when life crowds in with all of its uh, pressures, there's still room for us to creep up behind Jesus, if that's all we feel we can do, and reach out to touch in that odd mixture of fear and faith that characterizes so much of Christian discipleship. There's still room 
to come up behind Jesus in that strange mixture of fear and faith and lay hold. And as she does, verse 29 tells us this. And immediately, there's that word Mark loves. The flow of blood dries up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately as she touches the hem of his garment, she is healed. At once she is healed and yet Apparently, her healing process wasn't complete. We need to be paying attention because we see an illustration of our salvation that we are saved and we are being saved. We're healed and we're being healed. We're declared righteous and we're being made righteous. She is healed and yet there's a process that Jesus is bringing her into to bring about healing. See, she had it in her mind that her greatest need was for Jesus to touch her body and heal her body. But what she didn't realize was that there was a level of healing that couldn't come until she was drawn out by God's grace out of isolation and out of fear. A kind of healing that would require her to come forward in honesty, honest about herself, honest about her affliction, honest about her past, honest about her fears. Which leads to the third point, Jesus creates safe space for us to tell the truth about ourselves. Did you catch that? She comes and she tells the whole truth. In the book of Genesis, the last description that we're given of the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the perfection of the garden before sin jacked everything up, the last like picturesque scene of the Garden of Eden is found in the final verse of Genesis uh, Genesis 2, verse 25, and it says this, and the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. How would you conclude a description of paradise existence? Naked and unashamed. Fully known, nothing to hide. I mean, that's what happens when you're naked. And never more alive. It wasn't until after sin entered into the picture and entered into the human experience that we find the man and woman hiding in the trees, escaping into the shadows. They fear being known by God. They cover themselves in fear being known by one another. See, here's what shame does. Shame convinces us that we can't be fully known and fully loved at the same time. That if someone really knew the, the, the true me, if someone really knew my story, if everyone, if you knew what I was about then you would push me away, that you would reject me, that you couldn't love me. But I love this scene, like God first did in the garden, Jesus draws this woman out of hiding. Adam, where are you? Woman, where are you? And she's drawn out of the shadow. She's drawn out of hiding so that she can receive the kind of healing that she needs, healing of heart, healing of fellowship with God, healing relationally. See, what this shows us is that We too can come out of hiding and into communion with Jesus Christ and truly be healed. See, I find this interesting. She she begins her journey towards Jesus as a nameless woman hoping not to be noticed. She just goes up, gets her touch, and she's out. She's like some of you on a Sunday morning, right? That wasn't in the script, but sometimes it just comes out. Right? I I just need need my little... Okay. And leave unnoticed. But she's selling herself short. So do you. 
She's restored to her God, and listen, she's given a name. Verse 34, daughter. Can I get an amen? The nameless woman receives a name. And so we see in this motion that a move forward in honesty is a move deeper into healing. There was something more that God had for her beyond her just physical healing. He was going to heal her soul. He was going to heal her fellowship with God. He was going to heal her relationally with her community. As one commentator put it, this woman serves as a role model for people who are shy and ashamed and afraid. That you too can be honest about your brokenness. That you too can come and tell your whole story. That you can tell the whole truth. And you can come boldly. How? Because fellowship with Jesus Christ means that we can truly, in fact, be fully known and fully loved. Who would have thought? But there's sort of this dark turn in the story. Because we get wrapped up in the story of this woman Our hopes are raised, she's healed, she's called daughter, and then we remember something. Oh my gosh, the man's daughter is dying right now. Verses 35 through 36, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, Only believe. Now, I have to imagine this sinking feeling that the father has in this moment when he hears this. Can you you imagine the anxiety he has as Jesus says, whoa, 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 let's stop. Let Let me talk to this woman. Jesus, my daughter is dying. And then he hears this. And all of his hopes are dashed to pieces. But there's a note in your Bible Next to the word overhearing in verse 36, so a little bit of a study here. Look at that word. It's the second word, overhearing. It's got a little number next to it, which corresponds with a little note at the bottom of uh, your Bible. What, What can overhearing also mean? Say it out. Ignoring. So let me read this again. But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Which leads to our fourth point. Faith ignores final pronouncements. Do not fear, only believe. What does this mean? It means what Jesus is saying is, I want you to stare in the face of impossibility and refuse to yield. What does it mean? It means I know that you're afraid right now, but I'm greater than your greatest fears. I want you to refuse to accept any final pronouncement other than my final pronouncement. Do not fear, only believe means you see evil, you see death, you see brokenness, you see division, but they do not have the last word. I have the last word. Do not fear, only believe. We're in the Easter tide. We're riding that Easter wave of the resurrection. This is a time for us as a church to remember that nothing that claims to be final is truly final until God says so. Easter was God saying to all of our doubts and all of our fears and all of our hopelessness and all of our despair, and he was saying, whoa, 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 not so quick. I haven't thrown in the towel. You shouldn't either. See, truth is, sometimes God will allow situations to get to the point where they're even laughable. 
Maybe there are, there are situations in your life where it's absolutely laughable to think that God could do anything there. But what we see here in the scriptures is that God will actually allow that thing to come all the way to the point of laughable when we think something couldn't be done. As I'm reading through this passage, I'm reminded of uh, the account in the book of Genesis. Things had gotten really, really dark, really, really uh, bleak for the human race. And out of nowhere, in Genesis 12, God appears to this moon-worshiping individual and he makes this strange promise to him. He says that through your offspring, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. But there's a couple of problems. One is that Abram and his, and his wife Sarai were very, very old. And they had they'd been barren. They, they hadn't been able to have kids. And God says, I'm, through your kids, through your child, I'm going to bless the entire world. So Abraham and Sarah are really forced to live in light of a impossible promise for years, in fact, decades. And so there's this, this moment where just out of the blue, in, in Genesis 18, the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham about 25 years later and says, Abraham, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a child. It's such a crazy statement. I love this. The, the writer of Genesis records the first lull in history. Rachel's, or, uh, Sarah's like, laughs out loud from the other room. So she's like around the curtain listening, and she's found out by her laugh. And the angel of the Lord responds and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? You've got you've to wrestle with that question today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And sure enough, God delivers on that promise and sends them a child. In the kingdom of God, when time runs out, God is just getting started. When the world says game over, Jesus says game on. This is where Jesus shines. Look at me in verses 38 through 41. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a, a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. To Jesus, something as final as death is but a good night's sleep. With ease, I love this. There's no commotion. There's no like seance and like everyone, let, let's hold hands right now and really concentrate on this moment. With ease, he comes up to her and he says, Telitha kumai, which means little girl arise. It's the same way we would awake our, awaken our children. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. What Jesus is essentially saying to this young girl is your family thought it was lights out for you. What I'm telling you is it's a new day. You were just pronounced dead I pronounce you alive. Everyone thought your time was done. I say you're just getting started. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Why were they besides themselves? Because everyone knew Jesus could do something. But no one had any idea that he was going to do this. 
Which leads us to our fifth and final point. We come to Jesus for a cure while he offers nothing shy of a resurrection. See, this portion of, uh, of the Gospel of Mark is marked by anticipation. As we sort of sandwich these two stories together, especially as Jesus stops to heal the woman, to interact with the woman, there's this like anxiety, like, let's get the show on the road because this girl is dying. Everything seems to be leading up to this point where the young girl is raised from the dead. Now, while it is clear to Jesus that he's about to do something significant and spectacular, everyone else has no idea what's going to happen. Jairus believes that Jesus can heal, but there's nothing in the passage that indicates that he believes that Jesus can raise her from the dead. In fact, when the household of Jairus comes and meets them, they say, your daughter is dead. Don't bother him anymore. In other words, Jesus can't help us now. He can help you up to this point, but now you're in a section, now you're in, a, now you're in an experience where Jesus is incapable of helping you. Even the people that are wailing and, and, and weeping, professional mourners, they start to laugh. And what this highlights for us is that we all attempt to place limitations on Jesus by our own expectations. Jairus had an expectation for Jesus. The household had an expectation for Jesus. The weepers and the wailers, they had an expectation for Jesus. I think this all serves to show the different reasons that we come to Jesus for some of us, we come to Jesus in order to, to heal a relationship, perhaps to fix a marriage. For some of us, we come to Jesus because we, we want a sense of belonging in the family of God. For some of us, we come to Jesus because we have deep guilt and shame and we want relief through forgiveness. There are a number of reasons why people come to Jesus. It's interesting, as we read throughout the gospel, sometimes Jesus rebukes people for that behavior, and then sometimes he's just celebrates the fact that they're coming in the first place. I don't know how to sort all that out, but here's what I do know, is that when we come to Jesus, we should expect for him to far exceed our expectations. However you came today, whatever expectation you had, whatever you're seeking in the presence of Jesus Christ, you just gotta settle it right now. Christ is going to far exceed your expectation. Your expectations are puny. They are small, and God desires to do something bigger. Well, he does graciously hear relationships, and he does give us a family to belong to, and he does give us inner peace through forgiveness. You need to know this morning that he is after nothing less than new life. He is after nothing less than resurrection life. So you may be here and you want Jesus to make you a better you. You may be here and you want Jesus to fix something in your life. That's fair enough. But his sights are set higher for you. He intends to make you an entirely new person with, an, with a new heart and a renewed mind and a new vision and new power and a new future and a new reason to, life, to live life. Not a better you. Not a 2.0 upgraded version of you. A new you a transformed you, a resurrected you. So here's the question, how? Let me conclude with this. Look with me again in verse 30. How do we receive this sort of change? And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him. Now that, that has me scratching my head. What exactly is going on here? 
bare minimum, what we know is that the power has gone out from Jesus so that the woman can gain it. And what we see in this scene is really a glimpse into the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are powerless in and of ourselves to change our lives, to change our circumstances, to change our future. But Christ meets us precisely in our powerlessness. And here, in Mark 5, the power temporarily leaves him. But ultimately, as we read on in the book of Mark, Jesus would make himself absolutely powerless. Like we see illustrated here in the account of Mark 5, Jesus would be emptied so that we could be filled. He would shed his blood so that we could be healed. He descended into death so that his gracious words that he spoke over this girl could come to us, arise. Arise, my son. Arise, my daughter. Now, you may not have the issue of blood, and you may not have a child that is dying, but we all find ourselves in the shoes of these people in one way or another. We all find ourselves in a place of helplessness, We all live in a broken world that has been broken by sin, and we all live in a broken world where we are perpetuating that brokenness through our own sin. Like this man and woman in Mark, we lack the resources to change ourselves, and we lack the resources to change the world around us. But this is where the good news of Jesus comes in, because where we are weak, Jesus is strong. Where there is despair in here, Jesus brings hope. Where there is ugliness, Jesus brings beauty. Where there is uncleanness, Jesus brings cleansing. Where there is death within us, Jesus brings resurrection life. The gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. The gospel is God helps those who cannot help themselves and who are humble enough to recognize it. And in that strange mix of fear and faith, cling to a gracious rescue through Jesus Christ. We're more broken than we would ever dare to admit. And yet more loved and sought and pursued than we could ever imagine. Reach out to Jesus. Cling to Jesus Empty those hands. Let go of all the things you think makes you you. And find something better in Christ. Amen?